Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Steve Fowler. We're wrapping up our series in the book of Nehemiah. So if you've got your Bibles, go to Nehemiah chapter 13. And if you did not bring a Bible, uh, there is a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. And it looks just like the one I'm holding here. And go to page 791 and you will find Nehemiah chapter 13. And as you're, uh, as you're finding your way there, let me just tell you a little story from some years ago when Trina and I were living in Kelso, Washington. I was pastoring a church there. And a young couple started coming to our church. They were invited. Some of their friends invited them to come to church. It was really interesting because um, the, the, the husband had, had a little bit of faith background. I think he, as a young kid, he was, he was in a Catholic church, and, um, but he, hadn't, he wasn't attending church anymore. And, and his wife, he was married to an atheist. And, and they were invited to church, and they came. And, and it was really interesting because they had fantastic questions after services. And, uh, and, but they were there on a regular basis coming to church. And, uh, and over the course of some months, God was at work in them to the extent that the husband recommits his life to Jesus. And, uh, and his wife, during the service, we went across just kind of like this one right here. And we invited people to come and pound a ribbon, kind of create a memorable moment when they give a life to Christ. Well, in one of our services, she came up and, and pounded a white ribbon on the cross. And the, you know, the church went crazy and celebrated that because they, they, it was a smaller church. And they knew some of her story. And, and, and like we celebrate that. Um, even when we don't know someone's story, we celebrate the fact that someone is beginning a new friendship with Jesus. So uh, that was exciting. What was even more exciting was some months later, we had reserved uh, the, the uh, swimming pool at our local high school. We had a lot of people being baptized, and, uh, and she was being baptized. And that was fantastic uh, as she was taking the step. It was also pretty cool because her family was there. And as they heard her faith story, um, some members of her family began a journey of seeking Jesus. And in some months later, um, uh, there were some folks who gave their lives to Christ from her family. And anytime you get to see God at work like that, it's, it's just, it's awesome. It's just really fun. And, and then when you get to see spiritual transformation take place over the years, it's, it's just really, it's just such a grace of God to be able to see him at work in that extent. Now, uh, some years after all that, Trina and I, we, we left that church and went to plant a, a church in Hong Kong, an international church. And while we were in Hong Kong, we heard some pretty devastating news. This young couple, three kids, um, th- there were some, I'll save you all, all the details, but th- there were some things that happened that led to the, the family breaking apart. The, the husband and wife ended up divorcing. And, and, and the wife got to a point where she said, I don't want anything to do with God. I, I don't want anything to do with God. And, and it was, man, we, our hearts were grieved. And it prompted a question in my mind. How does someone go from, I'm, I'm, I love Jesus, to I don't want anything to do with him? How does someone go from being so close to God to being so very far from God? How does, how does that happen? What, what are, what are the, what's that process look like? And, and friends, that's a really important question because many of you are Christ followers. Many of you would say you, you're a follower of Jesus. You're a Christian. And as we read the scriptures, and especially as we get into the New Testament, and we read like, like 1 Timothy 4, it says, now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly 
that in the last times, some will turn away from the true faith. Or we listen to the words of Jesus as he was speaking to his disciples where he says, many will turn away from me and sin will be rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold. How does that happen? How does someone who's walking close with God get so far from God? This is a really, this is a really, we often, well, that, that'll never happen to me and it, it, it happens. I've, I've seen it happen, and Nehemiah chapter 13 doesn't give all the reasons of how that could happen, but gives us a few ways that someone who is walking close with God actually can get far from God. And in this series, in fact, the, the title for my message uh, that I sent to our communications department this week is um, From Revival to Rubble. And they emailed back and said something like, I just want to make sure I got this right because the series is from rubble to revival and you, you kind of have it backwards. And, uh, and I just want to say, I wish there was not a Nehemiah 13 uh, because in Nehemiah chapter 13, we, it ends abruptly and it ends not in a positive way. It actually ends, if you remember, Nehemiah, he's been rebuilding the city, walls are rebuilt, the, the, the rubble is, you know, is, is transformed, and the people are being revived. The, they're, they're listening to the law of God, and they're cut to the heart, and they're weeping, and then they throw a party, and then they're putting their name on the line, saying, put my name on this line, I'm, I'm following God, I'm going to obey him, and I'm, I'm in on this relationship with God. And it's, it's revival in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah runs out of personal days and vacation days and has to go back to Susa because he has a job. He's a cupbearer to the king there. And he goes back. And what we're going to see as we look at Nehemiah chapter 13 is that when he comes back, these people who were walking so close with God, who were saying, we're all in, are now walking away from him. They're drifting away and we'll get some answers as to how that happens. So um, I'm going to just begin reading in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 4, and I'll stop every once in a while, and we'll just make some comments about how, how someone who's walking so close with God can get far from him, and we'll talk about what that, what that might mean for you and I. So I'm going to start in verse 4 because verse 1 through 3 talks about some foreigners who are in this assembly, and, and they get booted out, and I'll kind of speak to that as to what that what that what. That could be about a little bit later in my talk. So verse 4, chapter 13, Nehemiah, it says, Before this had happened, Eliashib the priest, who had been appointed as supervisor of the storerooms of the temple of our God, and who was also a relative of Tobiah, had converted a large storage room and placed it at Tobiah's disposal. Let me just stop real quick here. Tobiah is one of the arch rivals, if you remember, one of the arch rivals of Nehemiah. He's been against the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And here he is, he's got some relations uh, to uh, this priest, and the priest has made a room available to him in the temple. The room had previously offered, uh, previously been used for storing the grain offerings, the frankincense, various articles for the temple, and the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil, which were prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers as well as the offerings for the priests. Verse six, I was not in Jerusalem at that time, for I had returned to, to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign, though I later asked his permission to return. 
When I, re, when I arrived back in Jerusalem, I learned about Elisha's evil deed in providing Tobiah with a room in the courtyards of the temple of God. I became very upset and threw all of Tobiah's belongings out of the room. Then I demanded that the rooms be purified and I brought back the articles for God's temple, the grain offerings and the frankincense. We'll stop right there for a moment because here's our first answer to how someone who could be walking so close with God can get so far from God. Nehemiah has been gone now for we don't know how long. It doesn't tell us how long he's been gone. It could be some months, could be a year, could be several years. He gets back and what he discovers is that a priest has allowed Tobiah, the arch rival of of Nehemiah, to have a little bit of an office in the middle of the temple, which is a problem for a couple reasons. One is the the temple, especially the the inner parts of the temple, is reserved for Jews, and Tobiah is not a Jew. Um, There's courtyards in in that temple, and um, if you were a Gentile, there's an outer courtyard, and that outer courtyard was typically used by what was called uh, God-fearers. Those were Gentiles who were converting to Judaism. And if you were a Jewish male or woman, you could go farther into the temple past that, that outer courtyard. And, um, but here's Tobiah, and he's been given space inside the temple, and Nehemiah is pretty ticked off. And he, he's, he's throwing stuff out of that room. But for you and I, here's, here's where this gets real personal for us. And we'll just put this on the screen here as to how this applies to us. How does someone who's close to God get far from God? Well, a decision is made to give room to something in my life that should not be there. It's as simple as that. Oftentimes, not all the times, but sometimes we we allow something to take, we make allowance, we give permission to something to, 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 to be in our life that should not be there. Uh, the FDA, Federal Department of Agriculture, printed a, a pamphlet some years ago. Um, the title of the pamphlet was the uh, Food Defect Action Levels Pamphlet. Very inspiring title. Uh, and it, and the, they printed this pamphlet because it is economically impractical to grow, harvest, or process raw products that are totally free of non-hazardous, naturally occurring, unavoidable defects. Sounds very clinical, and you're going, okay, what, what is that all about? Well, here's what it's about. Um, some examples of what they're talking about. What they're saying is that in some of our food products, there's some natural things that we, we, they're just going to be there. Peanut butter. In peanut butter, there's an average of 30 or more insect fragments per 100 grams that is allowable by the FDA. Now, I was, I was just trying to get my head around this because like, wait a minute, wait a minute. It, it, I, and, you know, how much is 100 grams? So I was, I was kind of doing some math, and I was like, okay, what, what's 100 grams trend? You know, and I went to walmart.com. It's like, okay, how many ounces of peanut butter in a, in a jar? And they, that 20-ounce jar, they got a 40-ounce jar because, you know, got to have big here in America. Uh, we need 40 ounces of peanut butter. Um, and uh, so I, I just did a little math. The, what the FDA is saying is in that 40-ounce jar of peanut butter, there, it, it's allowable that there are 340 insect fragments, which kind of ruins PB&J for you, doesn't it? As, and, and by the way, who, who tracks that? Who gets a jar of peanut butter and says, I want to make sure it's not 341 because we only allow 340 insect parts. <laughs> but then, then it keeps going and says in this pamphlet, it says in macaroni and cheese or pasta, there is an, you're already groaning. Haven't you heard the news yet? 
there is an average of 4.5 rodent hairs per 225 grams. I didn't even want to do the, the conversion, okay? Because I like, I like macaroni and cheese. I don't want to know. Um, wheat flour. Uh, in wheat flour, there is an average of 75 or more insect fragments per 50 grams, which some of you are gluten-free and you're going, and that's exactly why I'm gluten-free. <laughs> and, and yet the FDA is saying, this is natural, it's there, it's, you know, nothing you can do about it, just don't, don't worry, and, you know, we've all already lost our appetites for lunch because there's something in us that says, I, I don't want insect fragments in my food. And I don't want 4.5 rodent hairs in my, in my Kraft macaroni and cheese. And by the way, how do you determine a full rodent hair versus a half rodent hair? I, I don't know. I just, none, thank you. No, no, thank you. It shouldn't be there. And we, we laugh, we chuckle, and we groan at that. But the reality is, is that we also, in our lives, there, there, are, there are things that, that some of us would groan at we go, ah, that, that shouldn't be there. But here's what we do. Here's what I do. Not that big of a deal. I mean, come on. I mean, I'm not hurting anybody. You're, you're not hurting anybody. I mean, I mean, I'm not the only one who does this. I mean, there are a lot of people, you know, who do this. I'm, I'm not the only one. And typically what happens is we minimize and we rationalize. We, we know, we know it's, just, it's just a small part of my life. It's, not, it's, it's, not, it's, it's one room. There are a lot of rooms in the temple. <laughs> just one little, small little room. But friends, let me just say this. One of the ways that people go from close to God to far from God or having a heart, heart, hot heart to getting a cold heart is it sometimes, not all times, but sometimes it begins by just saying that's okay and there's something in us that we know it's not okay. And can, can I just, we just need to stop here and say, and just pause for a moment and ask ourselves, have I given permission for anything in my life that I, I know should not be there? Have I given permission? And, and if so, you know, what, what do I do? Well, it, it may be just telling a friend and asking for accountability. Or it may be something that's fairly complex and complicated and you may need to have a, a conversation with a counselor or maybe a, a pastor and talk about how, how, do, I, how do I uproot this, this thing from my life. Um, but that's, in this story, that's one of the ways the people started drifting away from God. And yet there's still another. And we'll just pick it up in verse 10 here as we continue on with the story. Um, chapter 13, verse 10 says, I also discovered that the Levites had not been given their prescribed portions of food, so they and the singers who were to conduct the worship services had all returned to work their fields. I immediately confronted the leaders and demanded, why has the temple of God been neglected? Then I called all the Levites back again and restored them to their proper duties. And once more, all the people of Judah began bringing their tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil to the temple storerooms. Now, I'm going to skip forward to verse 15. In those days, I saw men of Judah treading out their wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in grain, loading it on donkeys, and bringing their wine, grapes, figs, and all sorts of produce 
to Jerusalem to sell on the Sabbath. So I rebuked them for selling their produce on that day. Some men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise. They were selling it on the Sabbath and to the people of Judah and in in Jerusalem at that. So I confronted the nobles of Judah. Why are you profaning the Sabbath in this evil way, I asked. Wasn't it just this sort of thing? Uh, Wasn't it just just this sort of thing that your ancestors did that caused our God to bring all this trouble upon us in our city? And now you are bringing even more wrath upon Israel by permitting the Sabbath to be desecrated in this way. Then I commanded that the gates of Jerusalem be shut as darkness fell every Friday evening, not to be opened until the Sabbath ended. I sent some of my own servants to guard the gates so that no merchandise could be brought in on the Sabbath day. The merchants and the tradesmen with a variety of wares camped outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I spoke sharply to them and said, What are you doing out here camping around the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. And that was the last time they came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and to guard the gates in order to preserve the holiness of the Sabbath. Remember this good deed also, oh my God. Have compassion on me according to your great and unfailing love. We'll stop right there. How do people who are walking close with God, get so far from God. Oftentimes it begins by giving permission to something that should not be there in their life. And secondly, what we see here is that, that there are certain habits, that, certain, that the, the, the people stopped giving their tithes to, uh, to the temple, which allowed the Levites and the singers and the people who pulled off worship services in the temple to be able to, to not work, but to actually to, to give their, their lives full time to, to making the temple activity happen. And so the tithes stopped, stopped coming in, so they went back to work their fields. And another thing they, they stopped doing was, was, was honoring the Sabbath. These were people whose roots go back to being slaves in Egypt. And if you remember, God gave them the gift of a day of rest. They did not get a day of rest from their taskmasters. And the Sabbath was intended to be a day of rest so that they could reconnect and reflect with, with their God on, on their lives and, and who he is. It was supposed to be a day of gratitude, yet they neglected the discipline of, of giving and they neglected the, 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 the day of, of, of honoring the Sabbath, remembering their God, which which translates for us into, into this. This is how people go from close to God to far from God. A spiritual discipline intended to bring transformation and, keep, and help keep a close connection with God is neglected. Now, what's, there, there are a lot of spiritual disciplines. Here, it's got giving and generosity. And uh, can I just say to you a big thank you? Because your generosity in giving allows many people uh, around this place to be able to pursue our vision of a city of peace with God. We get to do that. We get to, we get to uh, fund ministries and, uh, and do that. And also, we have staff. And your giving and your generosity allows, allows staff to, to live out the calling that, that God has placed on, on their lives. I mean, you feed us. You clothe us. You, you give us the freedom to, to live out this calling. And so I just want to say thank you for that. And yet there, there are more disciplines than giving and, and Sabbath. There are disciplines like solitude and meditation and Bible reading. 
You being here today, coming to church, that's a spiritual discipline. Uh, that, that, that is something that, you know, oftentimes it's, it's hard to, to get up. I was praying for a young woman after the 8 o'clock service, and she's saying it's just so hard to get here. Believe me, I remember. We had, Trina and I had four kids, and when they were young, it was like, it was like World War III to get to church. And, um, and yet there's this discipline of, of being together that it, it helps nurture a relationship with one another as well as with our God. There are many spiritual disciplines, but what happens is, is that sometimes we neglect them and our relationship with Christ is harmed. Now, here's the deal. Don't travel to the toxic land of legalism on this. And what I mean by that is, Spiritual disciplines are not a measurement, uh, a way to prove that I am indeed spiritual. Uh, spiritual disciplines are, are not in place so that I can say, well, at least I'm better than Steve because I, I, I do this. No, that's not the point. It's about spiritual transformation and a deep connection with God. And, and so we pursue them not so that we can prove that we're pleasing to God. You already please him because you have been dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You belong to him. And, and, and so don't understand that, that you are actually already pleasing to God and so you're just nurturing that friendship, developing that friendship. And so um, as, as, we, as we look at this, what we have to understand is that we might have something in our lives in the sense we give permission or allowance to, uh, to, to God and, and we need to say, and we need to just purify, we need to move that out. But also, when it comes to spiritual disciplines, we have to ask ourselves, am I neglecting a spiritual habit that at one point in time actually nurtured and fostered my friendship with Christ? I remember, some of you, some of you have heard my story about growing up in boarding school, uh, and being a missionary kid in boarding school, and how my life was governed by bells from age nine to age 18. And one of those bells was 705. It was get your Bible, read, and pray. And for a lot of years, it was just like, ugh, I gotta do this. And, um, and I remember when uh, I graduated from high school and went to college, I was so relieved that there were no more bells. Um, but I noticed something. That rhythm, that habit of connecting with God in the morning got pushed to the side. In fact, that discipline of even going to church and being around other Christians got neglected. And I remember, I remember where I was. I was in a car. I was on a freeway in San Francisco. And, I, and God just brought it to, to my mind. And I just, I, I need to get back to connecting with God in the ways that, that he's sort of wired me to connect with him. I need to nurture my friendship with him. I need to get back in church. And um, for some of you, perhaps, there is a, there's a discipline that uh, has been neglected. And... Uh, and that's exactly how people go. No one who's walking close with God says, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna start drifting away from God. We just, we, we allow things in our lives or we, we begin neglecting those, those habits that actually foster a deep connection and foster spiritual transformation in our lives. So let's just, there's one more thing I want you to see from this passage. It begins in verse 23. And this, this part of the passage is kind of, it's like, okay, what is this about? Because this, this sounds, this sounds kind of strange. And, and kind of harsh. Uh, verse 23, it says, about the same time I realized that some of the men of Judah had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Furthermore, half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or of some other people and could not speak the language of Judah at all. 
So I confronted them, called down curses on them. I beat some of them and pulled out their hair, which means Nehemiah probably needs to come to one of our groups at uh, Life Path. He may, ha- may have an anger issue. <laughs> or maybe he's got some holy anger here. Uh, I made them swear in the name of God that they would not let their children intermarry with the pagan people of the land. Wasn't this exactly what led King Solomon of Israel into sin, I demanded. There was no king from any nation who could compare to him. And God loved him and made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by his foreign wives. How could you even think of committing this sinful deed and acting unfaithfully toward God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joyada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, had married a daughter of Sanballat. Remember Sanballat, Sanballat Tobiah, Geshem, Sanballat? This, these were the guys who were not, they didn't want Jerusalem rebuilt and they were against Nehemiah. The priest, Eliashib, the high priest, had a son and married a daughter of Sanballat the Horonite, so I banished him from my presence. Remember them, O oh my God, for they have defiled the priesthood and the solemn vows of the priests and Levites. What's, what's going on here? If you were just to isolate in on Nehemiah 13, uh, maybe some other passages in the Old Testament, it, it, it almost sounds like God is, he's like this ethnocentric God. Like he, there's, there's these one people and those are the people that matter and no one else matters. But if you see the story of God, if you look at the, the, con, the continuity of the story of God, you understand that God does not play favors. In fact, you get to Galatians chapter three, verse eight. He puts it pretty clearly. There is no longer Jew or Gentile. Meaning, what this means here is that there is no one people group that is better than another people group. God created the nations He created races. There is no certain color of skin that is better or superior to another color of skin. There's no one nation that is superior to another nation. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's no slave or free, meaning the people who have the good jobs, the people who have have wealth, who seem like they're blessed, they don't have a better standing with God than people who maybe have a, a, you know, kind of a lower wage or you know, the minimum wage. Uh, there's no difference between slave or free between God. There's no difference between Jew or Gentile with God. And there's no difference between male or female. In, back in Jewish culture, the men, they had the privilege. They had the access and women didn't. But under the new covenant, that's not the case. And in this story, what we are seeing here is not God saying people from Ashdod are horrible people. People from Ammon are horrible people. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is that the people from foreign nations had foreign gods. They had idols and they were very loyal to them. So that even someone as wise and as loved as King Solomon was, where he, the crack in the door for him was his taking foreign wives because his love for God was compromised by his love for his foreign wives because they brought with them their false gods and their idols. And it drew him away from his love for Jehovah. And what that might look like for us is simply this. Let's put it up here. It's the, it's the last way we'd answer this question. How does someone who's close to God get far from God? Well, someone you deeply care about influences you away from your faith in Jesus. 
Sometimes we have relationships with people in which they're actually drawing us away from our faith in Jesus. And, and, and we, we, we need to understand this. It's not about not having any contact with people who don't know Christ. Because we're, we're, Jesus says, now you're the light of the world. He's the light of the world. And they say, no, you're the light of the world. You're supposed to be salt. So it's not about it's extricating us from community so that we're not contaminated. That, that, that's, not the, that's not the point here. Paul says, I become all things to all men that I might win some. What it's getting at here is the very fact that you have, to, you have to ask yourself this question. Am I the influencer or am I the influenced? So what we need to do is in our relationships, in my relationships, is there, is there any relationships where I'm giving more loyalty to the person than I am to Christ? Now, let me just say a word, because some of you uh, have a spouse that is not a Christian. I was talking with a young woman after last service, and um, she heard me read this last part and was, you know, so does that mean we're not supposed to be married? Because it feels kind of heavy saying, I'm not, you know, am I supposed to get divorced? No, 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 not, not at all. In fact, Peter, would, Peter actually talking to, to folks who are married to a spouse who are not Christian says, live such godly lives that your husband or your wife would, would see your good deeds, and be convinced that Jesus is Christ. So if you're married and your spouse is not a Christian, it's not about extricating yourself from that, that relationship. That, that, would, that would not please God. But we live our lives in such a way that Christ is exemplified. I'm, I'm talking about the kind of friendships, the, the, kind, of, the kind of relationships that, that actually are, are pulling us away from our fidelity to our Christ. Does that, does that make sense? So we have... How people go from close to God to far from God often begins by giving room to something in our life that shouldn't be there, by neglecting a spiritual discipline that's intended to nurture our connection, our friendship with God, and bring about spiritual transformation by the power of Holy Spirit. And lastly, because there's someone that we, we care deeply about, but they're actually influencing us in the opposite direction. And maybe you're here, and there's something in your life that shouldn't be there. Maybe you're here and you've neglected a spiritual discipline and you can feel that you're drifting. Maybe you're here and there is a relationship that you've really got to take stock of and ask yourself, is this, is this, am I the influencer in this relationship or am I the influence? Now let me just wrap up here and just say this because Anytime we talk about drifting, we're at a place where we used to be close with God and we're far from God, sometimes the mean voice in our head can start talking to us. You know, I mean, you know what I mean by that? Like, man, I'm a horrible person. I can't believe I'm in this place. I can't believe I've allowed that in my life. Um, and, and the mean voice comes, and we lose hope. We, we lose strength. We become discouraged and disappointed with ourselves. And we don't need anyone else to tell us that we're, you know, that we're struggling, because we know, and we're pretty hard on ourselves. Jeff mentioned this is Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and the crowds are cheering. They're saying to him, Jesus, you're our hero. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're cheering him on and they're excited and they're waving their palm branches. It's, it's, it's like waving the stars and stripes. This is our hero. He's gonna overthrow the Romans. What are they shouting a week later? Crucify him. The move from being close to Jesus to being far from him, one week, we're such fickle people, we're such broken people. That can happen over time or it can happen really quickly. 
So what does God do with the people who one day are shouting Hosanna and the next day, just a week later, are shouting crucify him? Does he just say, that's it, I'm done with them? No, seven weeks later, the disciples are in the upper room. Holy Spirit comes in power. It's Pentecost. The people come stumbling out of the room and so filled with the Spirit that the people are observing them and saying, they're drunk. And Peter stands up and says, no, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. And then he preaches a sermon, a pretty powerful sermon. Three points. God sent his son. You killed him. You're in big trouble. That was his sermon. And the people, the same people who one day were shouting Hosanna, who the next day were shouting crucify him, are now saying, what do we do? Is, is there any hope? And, and Peter says, repent. Repent. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, be baptized. And the early church is born. 3,000 people came to Christ on that day and many people in that early church were the same people who one day were shouting Hosanna but drifted to the place where they were shouting crucify him and I had gone back to a place now they were saying Jesus is Lord. Friend, if you're here today and you know that you're not walking closely with God, do not listen to the voice of condemnation. Listen to the voice of hope, the voice of your Savior. Your heavenly dad who longs to redeem. Yes, there's a point we need to repent. And that that can sound like a tough word. Repent literally means to have a change of mind, change of heart that leads to a change of behavior. There's... Perhaps something you've made room for in your life that shouldn't be there. Maybe you're watching on live stream. That's the case for you. Or maybe there's a spiritual discipline that's been neglected. A relationship that's, that's kind of leading you away from Christ. But repentance is, repentance is turning back to a God who just is so gracious and so merciful and so compassionate and does not condemn. In fact, let's just pause for a moment. Just bow our heads and close our eyes and let's just respond to what God may be saying to us. And you could begin that conversation simply by just saying, Jesus, what, what are you saying to me? Jesus, are you, are you speaking to me about the discipline I need to re-engage with? So I can grow in you. I mean, it's about something that's in my life that shouldn't be there. Thank you, Lord, that you pursue us so that we might have a relationship with you, but the pursuit is not done. You're still pursuing us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Fill us with your spirit so that we might walk closely with you. I pray this in your name. Amen. Salem Alliance Church is a community of Jesus followers located in downtown Salem, Oregon. And we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. You can view today's entire service online at livestream.com backslash Salem Alliance.